Welcome to Addiction to Recovery. Our purpose and passion is to bring you not only the science of addiction, but also the patient perspective and how the two relate. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Um, Another exciting day because... Again, we have big legislative changes in Minnesota starting. Actually, this is going to be played tomorrow, so August 1st. So much like the cannabis bill we talked about a couple days ago, we wanted to talk about another huge bill that came through Minnesota. And again, this is uh, just like a cannabis cannabis episode. This is not an opinion based. Um, um, well, our opinions, right? Eddie probably has. Eddie, a Eddie probably has. <laughs> but but we are. Um, we're just trying to stay neutral here, and um, uh, it might come out. You pro- you probably will see some of my bias, but um, yeah, I I just feel like it's important for the public to get the information without much bias. You know, like when when it comes to the knowledge that the general population has, I I don't I'm not picking on the general population. I'm just saying that a lot of the information is not. And not it's available. fake news. Yeah, and, and then it's all it's all biased, you know. So it depends on who you hear it from is what the what the truth is, and that's why we really wanted to get any on because he's he was on the front line of this this whole this whole deal, and so thank yeah. you, Eddie, for coming on. So yeah, hey, it's my pleasure, guys. Yeah, so invited Eddie Krumpetich, who is I met Eddie through <laughs> Dr. Ryan, and we just had this very. I don't know, let's make a lot of changes kind of world. Um, and this bill specifically, I don't know. I, I like to say you wrote it, but um, I don't think it's... Well, we wrote the bill. <laughs> and just had somebody write their name to it that had the ability to actually make it. But welcome, Eddie. I am so excited you agreed to be on here so I didn't have to do all the research again like the cannabis one. Um <laughs> I mean, I sat and listened to these meetings, and a lot of it went over my head, but you did all the work, so it's great that we can hear it um, uh, from Eddie, the author. Yeah, from the horse's yeah. mouth. Exactly. Yeah. Before we get yeah. going on, on the actual details, can you just give us a, a quick overview of uh, like who you are, how you got to, you know, where you got to the point where this was an important thing for you? Yes, yeah, sure. So my name, uh, and I appreciate you guys having me on, um, my name is Eddie Krumpetich. Um, I am a consultant for the National Harm Reduction Coalition and the Drug Policy Alliance. However, I started these ventures about a year, a year or so removed from the streets of Minneapolis. And I was doing it for free um, because I had gotten uh, rather angry at some of the treatment that um, we were facing, not only in terms of substance use, but in, from, in, in denials for basic care. And I'll get into that as it goes along. However, I was a, and you guys know this, a high school history teacher on the East Coast, got my master's degree um, right out of my undergrad, and I was, you know, a typical college kid. Um, I had been using methamphetamine off and on during the weekends at that time. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I had tripped over into a compulsive habit that that ruined my life um, or took away those those markers that we look to in recovery. However, I was using meth on the weekends uh, and teaching, and I ended up winning Teacher of the Year at where I was living, coaching high school basketball and football. So I looked on the outside like I was playing the part really well. Um, That would begin to tumble as a lot of that shame and the trauma responses would begin to 
bubble up from my childhood. Um, and I would eventually um, resign from my third teaching position and come out to the state of Minnesota uh, to try and find recovery. And a very long story short, um, picture a guy who had no resilience in terms of the way um, that I was living life. I was enabled by uh, a semi-wealthy family. Uh, and I really didn't have any grit to my chest, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. until I started pushing everybody away in, in my drug use. And I eventually found the streets of Minneapolis because I couldn't even sustain housing at that point. And I walked the streets homeless off and on and in and out of treatment. Um, and your listeners will probably hear this somewhere else anyway, but uh, 40 treatment centers, 30 wow. detoxes, yep, 30 detoxes, um, countless hospitalizations, surgeries for cellulitis. I had hit the bottom. I was on death's door. So really quickly, I just want to back up a little bit to the teaching days because you said in college, you know, using on the weekends – you know, around the time you were starting to say, you know, the shame caught up to you while you were teaching, was that escalating you so it was almost becoming more of a daily thing and kind of, I don't say loss of control because that implies all the stigma choice and all of that, but had that progressed to that point? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the DSM, I think, hits the nail on the, on the head when it talks about the, the markers for which we would tip the edge, so to speak. Um, I wasn't at a place where there was a loss of control. I still felt uh, I still had a schedule. Um, I still showed up, um, albeit I would uh, not complete all my work all the time. However, uh, in college, I was your typical binge drinker. You know, I would think of it kind of like the guy who was going to a party um, and was doing it normally. However, on the weekends, I would use methamphetamine. I'm a, I'm a man who identifies as gay. That was where our community had trauma language that was bonded together. And uh, I was naive to that. I didn't, I didn't uh, see an issue with that because I was able to still maintain and I was unaware of the dangers of it. So as you, now I'm, I'm going to try and fast forward this to, to the part where you're going to get into the legislation, but I just want to, you know, I get the idea of, you know, how, when you got to the streets of Minneapolis, you're an educated person, and and now you're seeing some of the things that are happening behind the scenes that most people look away from. Was that a, a big part of why you you started to have that that drive to maybe get some change happening? Yes, um, that 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 took place in my heart center. I'll say um, I had a couple things going on at that time. One was the the excruciating emotional pain that goes along with a substance use disorder. I was isolating myself and alone. And coupled with the fact that the people who were on the streets with me, and I was isolated even on the streets. However, um, when I was together with others, I, not, I did not meet uh, unkindness like anytime. Anytime we did drugs together, um, we kept each other warm. We were sitting out in St. Paul and, and with frostbite together. It was, it was those experiences. And then I started having thoughts back to my teaching days, like, um, wow, I had this all wrong. You know what I mean? What I was teaching was, was all wrong. And I was experiencing what it felt like to have nothing and to want something better for myself. And then when I started climbing out of that hole, I wanted better for the people who were on that train with me. Um, they were heroes to me. And I, I would be in use, and this is 
some cool stuff. Uh, I'd be in use with people and I'd say, guys, I'm not going to stop until um, I've helped us. And wow. wouldn't you know that my spirit took off from there and I didn't stop. I kept my word. That's amazing. I mean, that's, I mean, I, that, I can't put it any better than what, uh, you know, I experienced in a way, not, not to your level. Um, I'm not, I'm not trying to change laws and everything, but I'm, I am trying to serve the people that are still in that. But it is just, it, it tugs at your heart to see the people because there are good people that are stuck in there and, um, to see them suffer and to see people die. Uh, it's, it's the hardest thing in the world. And, um, you know, you just, you just feel like you want to do something for them. And the one thing I, yeah, my dad, I just say the one thing you, (laughs) the one thing you said that probably will fit into what you're about to say is, is that you were not met with unkindness. That's a double negative. You were met with kindness and that community and, you know, Josh, in your story, you've kind of said a lot of the same thing. And I think that's one of those stereotypes that society as a whole has is that, no, this is just this violent, you know, obviously there's parts to everything, but it's that community that people don't think about. Yep. You got it on the head. My, uh, my, I heard when I grew up, people told, and I, you probably can relate to this, like, Oh, don't go down that street there. That's dangerous. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was like four or five years old and I didn't consider there, I didn't even know there were bad streets. Yeah. I didn't even, I had no idea. I would put money into the cups of homeless, even when I was like four and five years old, and I eventually became that person. Right. However, I also walked the streets like I was four years old again. I didn't believe in bad streets. So I would walk right down there. And you know what? I was met with kindness. Every time I was met with somebody who would offer something or at least, you know, not bother me um, and allowed me to, to live a life of therapy on the streets to, to experience what I needed to in order to get off of them. So the messaging that we have out here is completely wrong. The people on the streets are some of the most amazing humans I've ever met. And um, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be alive today. Amen. That's, you know, I, I can say the same thing, Eddie. I mean, there's certain people in my life that I guess I don't communicate with as much anymore because it's it can be a trigger for me. But I, I do reach out to them every once in a while and just thank them for, for keeping me alive throughout that, that terrible, terrible time I was in. Because, yeah, there is some kindness. There is kindness in there, but it is a dark world. And, um, and it's not fun. So I guess, uh, you know, it, that, that does play into, you know, being an applicable, you know, portion of your life to why you're doing what you're doing. And, uh, I guess, would you just like explain what this legislation, legislation that is, what, what your what it is that you would call it or how you would best describe it to the general public? Yep. So, um, we had a gap in services here in the state of Minnesota, um, I, I want to throw a couple statistics out at you. Perfect. Since 1970, in the state of Minnesota up to 2015, criminalization um, has increased about 284%. From 2000 to 2015, overdoses have increased 342% during a similar time period. And the, the most interesting part about that is if you look at treatment admissions, they're rev- relatively steady. So people are dying at an exponential rate. People are going to jail at an exponential rate, and yet we're not seeking treatment. Well, why is that? Because we're trying to incarcerate our our way out of a drug war that has not worked. So we knew that we had to find something in the middle 
in order to bring people to services rather than a jail cell. And that was the onus behind this entire, uh, entire piece of legislation. And so what was already on the table for this last, le uh, last legislative session was a syringe service program bill. Um, think of it like a frontline worker, um, a doctor, for example, or a nurse distributing paraphernalia. They're covered, right? So they already have protections. These frontline workers at a syringe service provider did not have protections. They could have been held criminally liable. So that piece of the bill was already together, and we were, we were looking at that with our partners. However, we started looking at other components that may help during the sessions. One of those was um, a handicap on pharmacists for dispensing the number of syringes. I argued uh, successfully uh, that rural Minnesota in particular was greatly affected because very sparse in terms of services. So if you have a pharmacist who dispenses 10 syringes to somebody, that may not be enough in a snowstorm or with transportation issues um, or hours of operation to save lives. And once you know, we've had uh, HIV outbreaks and escalatory overdoses here in the, in the rural areas of Minnesota. So we got rid of that handicap. The other ones would seem obvious, uh, but do uh, have caused for some conversation are drug testing. This is on the landscape of uh, many people in the national, uh, national ideologues is fentanyl test strips. Well, I'm gonna tell you guys the, where the science is now. It's just, that is not enough. So the problem is, is that if we legalize fentanyl test strips, what ends up happening is that we have to go back and re-legislate every time something new comes out. So we said, well, wait a second, why don't we just remove testing completely from the paraphernalia statute? So in our state, we said that fentanyl test strips, xylazine test strips, and anything that comes out to test substances in the future are okay here. That is going to save a boatload of lives. So if we have a new novel substance that comes in, we're going to be good to go because we just want people to be able to know what's in their stuff. And lastly, the one that's got the most attention, it seems like, um, is the paraphernalia statute. Uh, we know that uh, if you use uh, uh, clean, or we don't use the term clean, but if you use new uh, syringes or paraphernalia equipment, your chances of reducing, your chances of contracting HIV or hep C are reduced about 50%. Um, and there are studies all over the place for that, but even the CDC has basically gone in that ballpark. However, syringes were only one component to that. There are, most people smoke things like methamphetamine or uh, crack cocaine, for example. And so we were doing a disservice to these individuals who needed to have supplies that were unused in order to stay safe. So we removed that barrier for all paraphernalia. And it met the science where it was at, it wasn't that hard. And the big kicker here that we saw was, why are we distributing unused paraphernalia and that not allowing that space for someone to return to services? And we say, why aren't people coming to treatment? Why aren't people coming back to services? Because when they use paraphernalia, they become worried if they do, because now it's criminalized sure. because it has residue in it. So we said, what if, where we, can we go with this? And we said, well, let's just uh, legalize some of the fentanyl that's in this. And we said, wait a second, there's a ton of substances that are in this stuff. So we went ahead and legalized um, all the residue inside. So now we've created what we would call a therapeutic or a um, public health wheel where somebody can take a used supply and bring it back to the service where they got it. So we're gonna reduce syringe litter. We're gonna reduce infectious disease. And here's the most important part of this bill. The science is incontrovertible. It is this clear. 
that if your touch, if your first touch is with an SSP or a doctor or a provider who is offering referrals and services, and that is what they see, you begin developing trust, and eventually someone like myself uh, will see a, a path forward that's healthy for them. And what that looks like for me is, I tell this story all the time, I was a down and out um, meth user who you know, would go to any length to get high. Um, I had some big moments harm reduction wise in my recovery. Uh, and one of those was what going from injecting to smoking. I started, you two know uh, how hard this is. Um, it was so hard to pass up uh, the syringe when it was going around. And so I started smoking because I was like, you know what, this is healthier for me, for my, for, my, for my person. And it was about a year after that, that I found recovery for me. That is what the science says. I learned that from harm reduction. And that's basically what the bill does. Thank you, Eddie. That was a great amount of information, and it was you, you do such a good job of, of presenting it. You know, it's, it's like it's like I told you before. I didn't know show prep so that I could be like the the listener. You know, and I yeah, yeah, I'm a little more versed on it because I lived in that world, but I have a better understanding of it now. And so I thank you for that. Um, I guess I'll, I'll take the first question, Heather. By um, all means, because I, I wrote down quite a few. Um, but and I've asked a lot of these questions in meetings, yeah, so I'm, I'm yeah. glad that you don't have that experience. I guess the one that stuck, stuck out to me was why, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me, why were those test, testing tools illegal in the first place? Because there is this false narrative that exists that if you use harm reduction services like giving a fentanyl test strip to someone who uses, you are enabling their drug use. It is the penultimate um, most discussed um, negative paradigm that exists. So we have to break those barriers, right? And the overdose numbers um, and fentanyl really created an avenue for change there because we didn't want to see people continuing to die, right? So we said, okay, if we give fentanyl test strips out, we know that people can test what's in their supply. And then we know that uh, how much they can use. So you become an educated user. The science says that if you actually give fentanyl test strips out and they come to those services, you lower the drug use, you lower, like with a capital L. And that was my story too. Um, the thing is, is that fentanyl and substances go ebb and flow you know, throughout history. Mm -hmm. uh, so we wanted to make sure that that barrier had been, had been reduced so we could continue to have other, um, other testing uh, capabilities as well. Okay, I'm going to ask the devil's advocate question, and this is not coming from where I, this is not my belief, but, you know, we, and I'm sure there's still a lot of people in society that still think this, you know, especially when people hit fentanyl. There's people in the medical world that say this, even when people are on fentanyl is, you know, if they're educated users, then why don't they just stop? And, um... In terms of like the testing, because you still have those people that say, well, then maybe they just need to go away. And I hate even that people think that. But when you're met with these people who think that this is enabling or they start to question, well, if they're educated, then why not? How do you bridge that conversation where you're saying, well, they're educated and that will continue to open the door? If they stop, they die. And let's be very frank, and I want, to, I want to say these words loud and proud because it's, I say this because this is what this bill has done. 
if they stop using fentanyl, they will immediately begin to go into what's called withdrawal. And that withdrawal is a loss of tolerance. When we're talking about opiates, opiates are, um, they uh, affect our endorphins, right? So they, they uh, put into the opiate, uh, the opiate receptors um, are pain centers, right? And so what happens in like other drugs is that you get a physical withdrawal from that. Here's the dangerous part is that you've built up that tolerance over time. It's taken a long time. So uh, people who are using know how much to use. If that person uses one more time after they withdraw, I'm saying this one more time, their chances of overdose are so high that it's unbelievable with the strength of the uh, substances that are on the street now. So when you go to jail and you lose your tolerance, your risk of overdose has increased between 10 and 300%. So what, what we have now is a system of access with things like MAT, which is uh, medicated assisted treatment. We like to say medications for opioid use disorder. This is the gold standard, gold standard, gold standard. There is nothing more important than getting somebody on a medication to treat opioid use disorder. And what do these medications do? They help with that very thing. They're not saying, hey, by the way, stop using. What they're saying is, is you are now able to deal with your cravings and have some protection, right, if you were to go back and use with some of those um, uh, MAT substances. So for those people who think that it's enabling, what you're actually doing is exposing somebody to services and allowing them to bridge the gap. And by the way, when it comes to nefarious behavior and criminality, when do people engage in that behavior? It is typically when they do not have their supply. Right. Right. So if you take away their supply and you create those emotional responses like desperation and longing and all those uh, very difficult emotions to deal with, you then create behavior that's necessary to fill that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm just looking at Josh's face. These like... are these are just things that I've always thought of that you're that you're seeing, and um, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, like the I've seen so many of my friends when they overdose and die, it's usually after they've had a, a temporary um, span of, of sobriety or span of not using. You know, they're not in recovery per se, but they have not used for a while. Like you said, jail or a temporary stop in a treatment. And then, like you said, a nail in the head. If you go out and use that one more time, your tolerance is down. And so, yes, that is, I, I'm 100% in agreement with you. Um, I still have my, I'm, I, I'm still having a hard time understanding why they would ever, I, and I get the whole, they, they're against harm reduction, but man, that, that whole testing thing, the last time I, I used, the last time I went on a, a brief run of a, a lapse, there was so much fentanyl in the, in the methamphetamines that I couldn't find a batch that didn't. And, Me too. Uh, yeah, and, and it was so bizarre because they do opposite things. You know, it's, it's like a depressant mm -hmm. against a stimulant. And um, it was frustrating. I guess that was one of the reasons why I didn't stay on that lapse. Um, but I think that the one place I saw that they did give out um, testing strips was on the release from jail. It was at least one of the uh, people I met that was released from Wisconsin jail. They had a they had a test strip that was involved in the packet of the exit, and I thought that was a pretty cool thing. Mm -hmm. Where they're starting to to come in line with the fact that when somebody leaves services, including treatment, by the way, and I want to make that I want to make that clear, that it is such a vulnerable time 
for some. We do not have enough services right now for individuals who are leaving. Housing becomes an issue because of felony convictions. Um, if you're in treatment, housing becomes an issue because there aren't enough sober homes. So that instability already creates a stress response, right? Um, so how do we deal with that? We provide services. Naloxone, for example, fentanyl test strips. Um, dare I say that our jail systems need MAT. That's coming. <laughs> That's, that is not only coming. That's Heather's we're soapbox. Around, yeah, we're around the corner from that. That will that alone will help to turn the tide as well, right? Uh, because we don't want to deny people um, doctor-prescribed medications. That's absolutely ludicrous, right? So if somebody goes into a provider and a provider who, like like you, have been to school for some over a decade and say, you need this medication, and then you go to a service where this individual has not been educated in the same capacity or doesn't have that form of expertise, says, no, I don't think so. How is that? that that's almost unconscionable, right? We wouldn't say that to somebody. And that may be the difference between life and death in this disease. Yeah, we, um, we actually presented on this in Atlanta at the National Summit was on the recidivism in the jail cycle. And on this exact topic, we don't want to necessarily go down the jail topic right now, but yeah, that's that's obviously a huge, huge thing. Um, I want to jump back to one thing with the paraphernalia because I think this is, um, you said this in a meeting once and, and or on one of your other times you've talked about this, and I think this is super important for the public to know is, you know, the paraphernalia and the spreading of, you know, especially HIV and Hep C. There's a lot of um, misinformation with this. Um, I mean, I know the data. Do you want to just explain? You know, it's not all just we're all using needles. It's not just you know unprotected sex. Like there's, you know, HIV and Hep C. You want to talk about how long they live potentially on oh, yeah. different things? Yeah, this is good stuff. So I don't want. I'm not a fear monger, but I do want to make it uh, abundantly clear. Um, what something like hepatitis C, which is a viral infection that affects our hepatic system or our livers, right? Um, it's an old disease. They're able to treat this disease today. However, I'd like to emphasize that, you know, the science is clear that it lives outside, uh, outside in oxygen for up to and over two weeks. Two weeks. So we're talking about a virus that can be on a countertop, on a toilet seat. And yes, this is true. Um, that can be alive and well outside the body. And so what do we want to do? We want to make sure that that does not happen. We don't want to transfer this virus, right? We want to we put a stop to that. So we use, um, we use supplies that are not used, right? We don't want to keep transferring these supplies to create, um, uh, to create an epidemiologic, excuse me, epidemiologic uh, concern, right. right? And this is simple stuff. This is worked from Indiana, from Mike Pence, Mike Pence of all people who uh, <laughs> implemented a syringe service program, right, in Southern Indiana. And what happened is stop the HIV outbreak. Exactly. All the way back to Washington, D.C. This is this science is easy stuff, right? And this is how we stop infectious diseases from spreading to our Minnesota communities. Yeah, the hepatitis C thing is just fascinating. And so when you're talking spoons, I don't remember where I heard this, probably Dr. Aurora from, you know, Albuquerque and the Project Echo stuff. But, you know, on a spoon or something like a paraphernalia, that hepatitis C can hang out on that for that long. And I think that's one thing people don't get. Um, HIV is, I guess, I'd say a little bit easier because it dies on air. But um, 
the hepatitis C, I can't tell you how many patients, almost everybody, almost every patient that comes into an addiction clinic, I shouldn't say everybody, at least two-thirds have had or have an active hepatitis C infection. I've had them both. One of them, you know, I, I, I acquired uh, HIV from a used syringe, right? Um, I'm one of these stories. It's part of the reason why I do um, what I do. I'd also like to mention in terms of cost, someone who acquires HIV is going to be spent, is going to have to, is going to, excuse me, cost the system or insurance or the taxpayers over $300,000. Hepatitis C, it can be up to $700,000. And last year in the state of Minnesota, how many acute cases did we have? I think it was something like seven to 900. Do the math. I mean, this is, this is simple and people are like, oh man, we need to do something about funding. Well, I can help you with funding if you just follow the science, you know what I mean? This, this is easy stuff. Um, but the stigma is so big that it's tough to break that barrier. But I think we've done a good job this last session. Well, I think people, I hate to say it, but I think people look at, uh, look at somebody that is in risky behavior and feel like it's a punishment they deserve if they were to contract a disease and, and end up dying. And I think that's the wrong idea that people need to be, you know, sh- shared, you know, people need to know. And I like that your story is you're very open about it and you and you tell us and it's, and it's great to hear because look at what you're doing now, you know, you're trying to help yep. the change and that's what we need more of so that people get that idea out of their head, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm so grateful that you're doing it. And I guess, um, one of the other questions, so I'm going to jump to another question here quick, Eddie. Um, I've been arrested a number of times because of residue and, um, there's a, there's almost a fear of like, I, I, I would not want to, you know, do anything with needles. I would, I would hoard them and, uh, you know, and, and, and it was just a, a problem with trying to know what the legal legalities of it was. And then I found out the hard way. Oh, you got, you got a, a piece of glass that you're chopping up, um, meth on. That that counts. You you have a paraphernalia violation. You know, an old needle that's got you know they can test it just a little bit in the tip or whatever in the cap. You're done. So can you tell us exactly what the legislation means for that? Yeah. So um, when it comes to residue, it is defined as the unweighted amount of substance in drug paraphernalia. So if you can weigh the substance, it can be subject to prosecution. That is the literal definition of what the the bill says. Okay, so I may, and and there's also other ways of using, you know, meth too, and other, you know, you can use it in a, a glass pipe that would be, mm-hmm. you know, and then that that's uh that's a tricky one because you probably could measure something that's in there, but I think that what it leads to is for me is the question. I have a hard time. I'm not going to lie, and I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate. If if you have sorry, I didn't knew this one was coming. <laughs> <laughs> if, oh, I'm excited to answer. If if you have needles that are, are handed out in bulk. What, you know, somebody may be concerned about where do those needles end up? You know, what about the people that are handling garbage and they're not disposing of them properly? How do we, how do we get that in, in, uh, in terms of how do we look at that as a way to, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Does that make sense? I'm not saying the question right, but. Um, simple answer. Okay. Simple answer. So right now, um, they're ending up on the street. Yeah, that's that's one of the number one concerns. And why is that? 
because people don't want to come back to the services to dispose of them. Right, right. So because they're already afraid that the residue's in there. So if I take a if I take a used syringe, I mean if I take a um, unused syringe from an SSP and I use it, where's that syringe most likely going to go? Am I going to walk back to a service and dump that syringe in a proper disposal? Or am I not going to take the risk of incarceration and just dump it on the street? Correct. The answer, the answer is B. Yeah. So how do we do that? We start turning the tide with that by allowing residue inside there to be legalized. So now they're like, oh, don't worry about that. Just put that in the plastic bottle. We're going to take it back to the SSP because I can carry this around. It's not illegal. And there you have your solid syringe litter uh, uh, solution. Because they can, they can go to a place where there's a needle uh, disposal area. This is uh, now. Now, this is my other question that comes from that. Is there a way? What What is your thoughts on needle exchanges? So you bring whatever you bring back, you get in in return. You know what I mean? So that we know for sure that those needles are going, those used needles are going to somewhere where they're safely disposed of. What's the difference between that and and free access to uh, you know thirty five, forty, fifty needles? Yeah, so that's called one-for-one one exchange. I'd like to point to um, somebody who doesn't have needles, for example, to return, yet they're still desperate to keep um, their tolerance up or to not use unsafely or to use uh, safely. Would you deny that person a, a, a syringe because they don't have used ones to, to return? Of course not. No, I'm not no, do that. I get that. Yeah, yeah, so we get rid of that um, completely, right? Um, so those barriers exist merely in stigma. Right. We want individuals to be able to come back and get the supplies that they need. Right. I was able to get the supplies that I needed and my use reduced. Right. I until I found recovery for myself. That's that's the classic case of what a bill like this does. Do you think it part of why it reduces is just that that anxiety of I'm going to run out or I don't have the thing. So I'm going to like when you're overly anxious or you're overly worried or you're overly desperate because you 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 don't have more of your drug or you don't have the right supplies, you're going to actually end up using more because of the anxiety almost puts you into that little bit of withdrawal um, versus, you know, there's a safe place to get these things. So it does lessen some of that inherent anxiety or or sensation or um, explain when you mean by it actually went down, even though you had, it's the same as the condom thing. Like we give out free condoms, we're encouraging teenagers to have sex. So but that's not true. So how do, how do you explain that your use went down when you knew there was safe supplies? I was conscious of what safe use meant. So because fentanyl was in the supply, what did I start doing? I'd have a full shot of methamphetamine. So I'd have between 0.25 and 0.5 uh, grams of methamphetamine in a syringe. Um, I would do about a tenth of that. And I would do what's called tasting my shot. I wanted to see what it tastes like and felt like before I put the whole thing in there. If you're like me, you're just going to throw that whole thing in there most times. But because I knew the dangers of fentanyl, I started saying, well, I don't want to die. So I started testing my stuff. That act of testing my stuff went to, man, I don't think I want to, I don't think I want to inject. I don't think I want to risk my, risk my life for that. And so I said, okay, I'm going to smoke because it's better for my mental health and I don't want to die. So then I went to smoking and yep, I used a lot. And then I said, man, do I really need this? And wouldn't you know, I was able to then transition to recovery. That is what it looks like 
to move down. And the last bit of that was because I wanted to go into this next phase of my life, I started using from an eight ball to a teener uh, down to uh, a few grams. Yes. And it went down. That is the science, right? That is what we want people to understand is that people who are using are very intelligent and they do not want to die. Okay. They want the pain to go away. So what you're talking about is a titration method for meth. You got it. And that's, and that's what, you know, like when I was on painkillers, when I was, when I was doing, uh, you know, on oxy, that was always the talk was that we were going to titrate you down. So gradually we're going to get you off because they knew as, as medical professionals knew that if they had me cut off cold Turkey, that it was going to be a nightmare and I wasn't going to be successful. So why, why is it then, then that we can't do this with other, I mean, the Oxycontin is just a, a legalized government issued form of heroin. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and it is what it is and, and it's under and under doctor control. So if, if we look at these other drugs and that's where I think that these laws that you are, you are, uh, you are spearheading are go are moving it in the right direction. Now, mm-hmm. again, I'm not trying to show my cards here because there are things about this stuff that I, I still question. And I don't blame people for having these questions because they don't know the details, but as, as going forward, Eddie, I guess my one concern is because I, you, you were a meth user. I don't know if you knew the paranoia that I did, but knowing that, that there's misinformation out there left and right and not trusting anybody, how do you get this information out to those people that are actively using in the streets with yes. them able to truly believe that the, Oh, this law did change. I don't have to worry about this. I can go get these needles. You know what I'm saying? The information yeah, to the people a- who need it. <laughs> Yes, this is about people with lived experience. So thank goodness that I'm in touch with a lot of our partners from around the state uh, who are our frontline heroes, our nonprofit organizations, places like the Aliveness Project and Harm Reduction Sisters, and many on the indigenous, uh, indigenous lands across the state of Minnesota who know the law. And they're the ones who begin to educate the people because the people trust them. So they are the trustworthy agents of of substance users, right? And that barrier is so hard to break because think about somebody who is um, opposite or an authority figure, for example. What you see is fear, right? So we need to get this information to the communities that serve those people. And that's how we're doing it slowly. And you haven't heard a lot of talk because we're not doing this in some bombast way. We're doing this the way that the science has told us works through the community, through the leaders of the communities, and allowing them to educate slowly. Because if we take things too quickly, that's when we get in trouble. We're doing it the correct way. And because you're not hearing about it means it's actually working uh, in the correct way. I love it. <laughs> it yeah. yeah, it's, it's <laughs> difficult. It's, it's like so something simple. But... Earlier, yeah, something we talked about earlier, and I want to um, – really emphasize this, and I'm gonna use two subgroups here to articulate the point, and that's diabetics and people with atherosclerotic plaque or um, heart disease. Um, These two diseases are caused namely, and correct me if I'm wrong, but namely by saturated fat on on the heart side of things and sugar on the other side. So we don't question the medication, whether it's a statin for the heart or insulin or metformin for the for the pancreas, do we? It's like, okay, of course we're not. We're not going to run to the grocery store and say, oh, because we have a problem with pan- uh, with uh, 
diabetes, we're going to take all the sugar off the shelves. We're not going to run and go, oh, by the way, here's a nice marbled steak. We're going to take that off the shelf. <laughs> right? We're not going to do that. However, let's make it very clear about how those disease profiles get there in the first place. Those get there because of maladaptive eating behavior that come along with things like eating too much uh, processed foods or too much saturated fat and too much sugar. So let's go to the brain. The brain is a reward center, a dopaminergic or a dopamine reward center. Those are being rewarded in the person each time they pick that up. So are we talking about the heart and the pancreas? Are we talking about substance use disorder? Right. Are we talking about people who had the same issues as somebody like me whose drug of choice happens to be sugar? We're not going to go and take the supply away from the rest of society because prohibition did not work. Think about this. Alcohol in the, early, in the, in the 19-teens to 1920s was removed because of things um, like senators would say they wanted to remove it from the scourge of society. Does that sound familiar? Mm. Yeah. So they removed alcohol. And what happened? A sharp increase in crime. We had one of the biggest crime decades in our nation's history. People resorted to criminal behavior like uh, going to speakeasies and making, um, making uh, alcohol in their bathtubs. Sound familiar? Yeah. And so when they legalized it, what they did is they made a very strategic bargain. And they said, okay, alcohol will probably kill people. It probably will. But do we take it away from the most of society? Or do we put regulations on it? Because what they did was the correct bargain. They said, yep, alcohol will probably kill people, but it will kill way more people, way more, if we kept it illegal. So that was the 1920s. Now let's go to the 1980s. Here we are. They decided to, to remove uh, things like uh, crack cocaine and everything, and they, they, they clamped down. So what do we see? A sharp increase in crime as a result of those pieces of legislation. Increase in uh, drug-related homicides, overdoses, etc. Right? We engaged in other forms of criminal behavior. We had cartels. Remember the mobsters? The mm -hmm. same thing. Becoming our supplier. How is it any different? than what occurred back then. The only thing is, is because it's outside of your memory. Right, right. And you, you, you're, yeah, you're standing on history's ledge right now if you drink alcohol, because it was a long time before you that you didn't have that option, just like somebody who's using venom. Yeah. We want to make the supply safe. We want to make the supply regulated, because then we'll see the same outcomes as we did before. I do want to say one thing to all the people who heard the con you know the conversation about the the heart and the and the diabetes. Yes, there's genetic components to all of that. You know, we're of not course. all. I just want to say that because there also, of course, is the genetic neurobiology of addiction. Go back to episode two. <laughs> so I just want to make sure that that is stated from the medical point of view. Yes, I understand not everybody with diabetes did it to themselves if you want to go as straightforward as choice there but the genetic component is no different than in addiction so and that i want to emphasize and i wasn't trying to come down uh, on that, I but know. i do want to emphasize this is that um everything in this world is biopsychosocial so we're born with genes we turn them on through behavior and so here's the funny part the person who's diabetic and heart has heart disease and substance use disorder we're all the same family, nice. right? We're just turning the, we're turning those genes on. And by the way, most of them are turned on as kids. It's not your fault. It's not 
your fault, what's happening to you, right? These are subconscious stories that have been told through our genes and then our learned behavior as children. So every disease out there is the exact same thing, right? So that's where the empathy can come in is that, oh, by the way, that diabetic is just like me, man. Here we go. We're turning this stuff on. So we don't take people away from their services, no matter what you have, because that's how we begin to like uh, heal our nation. That's, it's as simple as that. One of the things that I, I'm, I'm picking up on and I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking on the fly. First of all, I wish that we had a live audience that could call in and ask questions because I'm sure they'd have a bunch for you. But We might I, get that yeah. after the fact, in which case we, we might have, have a Q&A on. on live now. But I, I, want, I would love to just emphasize that, that what we are doing in, 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 this, in this podcast and in this individual podcast, I just want to see people open their minds a little bit to, to not have such a closed view so that they can maybe learn something. And, and it's not like you're sitting here, you're on the other end of this line, and you're saying, I want to pave the way for people to use drugs for the rest of their lives freely, without reservation, and without any type of consequences. That is not what you're doing. That is what you're trying to prevent. You're trying to help people get the help they need through a different avenue than what we've been doing for many years. And I've always said, be being through the drug program and being through treatments. Why are we satisfied with like a 5% success rate when it comes to treatment centers? That's the answer for everything. Treatment centers and prisons and jails. Why are we satisfied with that? We wouldn't be satisfied with that for any other disease in this nation. So why are we satisfied with that with, with addiction? And I think you want to hear a very, a, a really, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. You want to no. hear a really fun statistic uh-huh. is that imagine if somebody is at a, um, January 1st, and you're making a New Year's resolution, and you're making that change. Let's say it's someone's going on a diet, for example. What is the five-year success rate for someone to maintain that homeostatic change uh, change profile? Uh, very. It's, it's almost akin to substance use disorder. Really? And there you, yeah, and there you have someone's ability to empathize with how hard change is. This happens to be food. So if you're like, man, I'm going on a diet, I'm ready to go. Here we go. I need to do it because I'm healthier. And then you fall off. That is nature. That's normal. And that is such a low statistic. Then you look at substance use disorder and you go, oh, my goodness. These people are just trying to change their addiction to food. They can't. It's, it's like January 1st all over again. Yeah. And right there you see how hard those habits are. And guess what? You develop that attachment to food as a child. And you develop that trauma pattern to substances at the same time. And that is where people can like wrap their heads around, wow, man, I remember going on a diet and that was hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? They're like, I don't want to do that ever again. For Some people us, made however, it one day, you know, and they're like, Oh, that was a good uh, try. Yeah, I know. It's like, oh, by the way, I could just do this. But that's <laughs> the point is that the cheeseburger is not going to kill somebody. But a shot of heroin will. Correct. Right. And so What's we heroin, got, man? We, I wish. <laughs> I wish heroin was in the supply only now. It make life easier. But you know. Yeah, so we just our, our whole goal here is to empathize with every human out there and wherever they're coming from. Right? Because we just we want access, free and fair access to services so you can heal and be a part of that discussion because you deserve it. You're worth it. And that's where we're coming from. Well, and that's what my my new profession is, is that a, a CPRS the, is to meet people where they're at. 
not trying to pull them back to you, but to meet them where they're at so that they feel comfortable in working with you and changing where they want to go. And uh, I think that's too much of what's been happening over the years with trying to change people that are in addiction. We look at them from a top, you know, we, we look down on them. And, and I think that just, it, it, it precipitates more use. And I, I would just, I would just encourage people to really give this a thought, really take a look at what, what Eddie's been saying here and think about how we can change what we've been doing. Let's just not do this. This is the way we've always done it. So this is the way we're going to do it. <laughs> I don't believe that. I think that the way we're starting to progress, and I think, can't thank you enough, Eddie, for the work you're doing, is to start trying to change. Because change is hard, but it's needed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what, I appreciate you guys having me on for sure. So really quickly, what's next? Um, that's up in the air. So we are going to continue down the path of uh, substance use, criminalization, and drug reform, right? And what that what that looks like. We do know that criminalization uh, does not work. Emphatically, it does not work. So how do we tackle that? We tackle that with multiple partners throughout the state, including partners both in our criminal justice system and our uniformed providers and people um, in the hospitals. These are the people who are going to be speaking in these dialogues. But most important, it's the persons, peoples, and persons who are affected those people who are using substances. So what does that language look like? We don't know, but we're putting big coalitions together um, to figure that out for our state. Exactly. So with that, I want to do say people reach out to us. You have our email. It'll be at the end of this episode. If you would like to participate in those coalitions, I have, I have the calendar invite thingy from Eddie that we can definitely share the, to, to join this, this big reform because we're working on putting that together right now. So yeah, we'll be at LaDonna Servicia, um, I probably butchered the name, my apologies, uh, tomorrow actually to answer questions uh, to individuals who'd like to come. Um, and that's at, I think, 5.45 p.m. because tomorrow is the rollout August 1st. So if you're able to be there, be there. We'll be there to answer any questions you got. Perfect. Awesome. We are going to try to be there. Yes, we are. <laughs> hey, great. All right, Eddie, anything final you want to add? It's my pleasure. I appreciate you both. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to play the outtake and Thank then hang you, Eddie. on Thank you, I really second. appreciate it. Yeah. Working together, we can move addiction to recovery. If you would be so kind, please go to wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a five-star rating, possibly a comment, but for sure click to follow us so you never miss an episode. Most importantly, don't forget to share our episode with a friend. And as always, if you would like to ask us a question, have a topic recommendation, or would even want to be a guest on our show, email us at addiction to recovery podcast at gmail.com. That's addiction, the number two recovery podcast at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at A2R Podcast or on Facebook or Instagram at Addiction to Recovery Podcast.